And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. And I'm Sarah. How are you doing, Sarah? I'm enjoying this easy listening voice you have going on right now. So... You've tuned in to the Scream Scene Horror Hour (laughs) with Ben and Sarah. (laughs) Yesterday, uh, Sarah and I played Dungeons & Dragons, which is not... Like, wholly unusual. Uh, but I run three D&D tables uh, a week. One on Monday, one on Tuesday, and one on Wednesday. Sarah plays in my Monday game, but I have a lot of players. And I thought it would be fun to get um, all the women who play in my various groups together to do, like, a ladies' night, where it was just, like, only them. And we did that yesterday, and we played from three in the afternoon to basically, like, half past midnight. And I'm the dungeon master, which... Um, you run the game. Yeah, if you're not familiar, the most important thing to really know is just that, like, for that entire nine-hour stretch, I was talking. Yeah. So my voice today is a little, like, worn out, so that's why I've adopted this easy listening tone, as Sarah called it, because that stresses my voice less than talking with my normal... Boisterous Ben. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. How's your pneumonia, Sarah? <laughs> You've been sick for like a solid week with pneumonia. Yeah, so that's been great. Uh, You can follow those adventures on Twitter. I've been complaining a lot on there. Um, So yeah, you might notice that my voice is a little raspy and my nose is a little plugged. But don't worry, we'll keep it (laughs) snot-free. I mean, yeah, if you're listening to the show, you can't get germs through an audio recording, so you're fine. You can get, like, squigged out. You know? Sure. It can be a little gross. Yeah, for sure. And I I want to avoid... You know, we're not into the era of gross horror yet. Sure. When we get to Saw and and 80s films where it's just like, let's look at all the gore and guts and look how gross this is, then we'll, you know, have our audio match that. We're not there yet. I don't think that's a good idea. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so I was sick for a week. You've been sick for a week. It's, It's been... It's been kind of a tough two weeks, but I think we're coming around the other side of it now. Uh, and what awaits us on the other <laughs> side of this, Ben? What are we watching today? Quite the segue. Today, Sarah, we are watching La Main du Diable from 1943. Cool. That's um, The Devil's Hand? Yes, that is the name of the film in English, although it's also not the English name of the film. Uh, because when the film was released in English-speaking territories, it was titled Carnival of Sinners. <laughs> That's such a good name. So, 1943, and this is a French film, so that means that those of you who paid any kind of attention to history uh, in school <laughs> or the channel will know <laughs> that... Um, that the Nazis were aliens all along. But they were occupying France. Yes. So this movie's coming to us from Nazi-occupied France. Do you want to maybe explain Nazi-occupied France for us a little bit, Sarah? Like, how did we get here, and what was life like in France in 1943? It's, uh, it's a tenuous time. Right. Yeah. But first, I guess, a little bit of how we got here. 
that means that we have to talk a little bit about the beginnings of World War II back in September 1939. September 1st, Germany invades Poland and that initiates World War II. France joins the UK, Australia, and New Zealand in declaring war against Germany. Um, Soviet Russia isn't part of the Allied forces yet. They have kind of a non-aggression pact with Germany. During this time, Russia does kind of annex the eastern half of Poland, so Stalin's active, but he's not joining any clubs right now. In September, this kind of starts what is kind of colloquially called the phony war on the Western Front, where the Allied forces have soldiers gathered and stationed along the French and Belgian borders, but there's no land fights going on. There's some air skirmishes. Most of the fighting is going on in the sea, but for the most part, there's not really anything going on. And that's until May 1940, when the Battle for France begins. So starting May 1940, the Axis forces, so Germany and Italy, are pushing westward into France and Belgium, and northwestern <laughs> into France's lower border. And this happens quite quickly in a period of ten weeks. Blitzkrieg! Exactly. France has fallen by July. I guess it was pretty clear to the government and military leaders of France um, that they would fall, and her leaders kind of debated how to ensure France's survival. Um, they know she's going to go, so how do we preserve what we can? The prime minister at the time, Paul Reynaud, um, he wanted to keep fighting, but because the other ministers outvoted him, he resigned with Philippe Pétain succeeding him. Meanwhile, with France's leaders debating internally how do we protect France in the midst of this, France is also negotiating an armistice with Germany. And they ultimately agree that France would be divided into occupied zones in the north and western parts of France, and especially in the Atlantic coast, and the remaining two-fifths of the country would be unoccupied, and it's kind of called the free zone. Mm -hmm. The occupied part was basically as far as the German army kind of got invading once they hit, like, Paris, right? Yes. So Paris, the capital of France, if you didn't know, mm -hmm. um, ha is now occupied. So the government, um, they had actually had to relocate a few times during these ten weeks. Um, but after this armistice is signed, they relocate to Vichy, mm -hmm. hence the kind of common name of Vichy France for this kind of occupied, unoccupied France. Mm -hmm. Along with this armistice, Germany continued to hold French prisoners of war and have them in work camps. France had to pay costs for the German army to occupy the land and also manage French citizens in the entire, what was originally France? Yeah. Yeah. There's no international trade allowed for Vichy France. Not really any transport is allowed uh, except for the railroads to continue transporting coal to German-occupied France. So while France could manage itself with kind of the heads of state in Vichy, it was in essence basically a puppet government mm -hmm. as they had to comply with Germany's orders. 
Um, so basically, Germany gets to run all of France, but doesn't have to touch the paperwork. Yeah, they're only having to you know, be in charge of the parts that are in the occupied zones. Yeah, and they get all the resources. Yeah, so I mean, the way you're describing it makes it sound like basically they were a province of Germany, you know. Yeah, but they they did have some independence. Mm -hmm. Um, For example, Vichy never actually joined the Axis alliance. Right. They, They were kind of considered in an armed neutrality state, where, like, they were allowed, like the tiniest of armies to help establish that, like, no, they're a country. Um, And they were officially recognized by Allied forces. The U.S. sent an ambassador to Vichy France. Mm -hmm. But they aren't really allowed international trade. And I think, like, the biggest example of Vichy France not actually having its own real independence is um, there was an order from Germany to send French Jews and other, quote, undesirables, Mm -hmm. end quote, to concentration camps like Auschwitz. So these are French citizens. that They're like, nope, Germany says you have to go. Mm -hmm. Um, They aren't really able to stand up against that. Right. As Germany invaded and proceeded to occupy France, there was an organized resistance known as Free France growing. This was both an underground movement in occupied territory and serving in battlefronts in North Africa, the Middle East, and in the Navy alongside Allied forces. Mm. And Free France was rallied together and basically run by uh, former French minister Charles de Gaulle. He rallied for rebellions with his June 18th appeal radio broadcast um, that went out to France and its territories, calling for, like, don't given to Germans, you know, free France. De Gaulle had actually escaped to London after resigning from the government, so he was able to really establish a foothold for free French forces alongside Allied forces. Yeah, and and outside of, like, the French borders, basically, where they wouldn't be able to operate. Exactly. So with De Gaulle and his free French forces supporting, or at least working alongside Allied forces in um, especially North Africa. Uh, You know, Allied forces began to turn the tide of the war, at least in that area. Um, And that resulted in, around November 1942, German forces coming in and actually fully occupying Vichy France, um, the free zone, uh, to help maintain the Mediterranean border, basically, that coast. Vichy France still was a government, it still had its regular powers, its own military, that very small army I briefly mentioned, um, that was disbanded in the wake of this next stage of occupation, um, but Germany's like, no, we need to solidify the borders here. So all of this is to say, when the free zone and a divided France first came in, French civilians were pretty divided about whether... This was good or bad, because you can kind of see the positive intent behind the Germans have invaded this part. Let's protect the last bit we do have. I can sympathize with that. But compromise after compromise eventually became eroded and eroded into 1942 fully occupied France. Mm -hmm. Um, What's also kind of festering 
discontent with Vichy France government is because that government is supposed to be managing its citizens. Um, they are the ones that have to deal with the underground rebellion movements. Not so much Germany themselves, but Vichy France. So you have French fighting French. Right. And yeah, by the end of the war, I'm sure we'll talk about it in a future episode, but by the end of the war, Vichy France, everyone in that government are considered collaborators mm-hmm. and do not have a good ending. Right. So that's where we're at with France. I, I was curious if you knew for this film, like, was it made in Vichy France or was it made in, like, basically German-occupied France? So it didn't really make a difference uh, which, because in France, like, in, in whether you were in the occupation zone or the free zone, in basically Nazi-controlled France, because that's what it was either way, yeah. um, there was only one legal film production body allowed, uh, which was Continental Films. That was a company that was established and funded entirely by the German government. Ah, so propaganda city. Yeah, so they nationalized the film industry, basically, under... Uh, I mean, not really, because it's a company. Like, it, that's... I mean, this is how the Nazis nationalized things, though. You stayed a company, and it was still capitalism, but, like, you took orders from the government, right? Yeah. Um, so, as you may expect, uh, the operation of Continental Films was tightly interwoven with the German film industry under Josef Goebbels. Yeah. The company would release 30 feature films from its establishment in October of 1940 to August of 1944 when it was dissolved. Head of production at Continental Films was Alfred Greven, who had fought in the German army in World War I before becoming involved with the German film industry in the 1920s. He joined the Nazi party in 1931. So the company is run by Germans. It's not like yes. a French company. Yes. Greven served in the Reichsfilmkammer after its creation and was appointed by Goebbels to head Continental upon its formation in 1940 under the supervision of Max Winkler, the commissioner of the Reichsfilmkammer. That's sort of the general filmmaking situation. Hmm. Um, if you wanted to keep having a job in France as a filmmaker, you worked for Continental Films. And this is still something that's, like, kind of a touchy subject to talk about in France to this day. There were some filmmakers who their decision to continue their career in this atmosphere got them labeled as collaborators after the end of the war. A 2002 motion picture called Safe Conduct, uh, which is a French film, uh, had a lot of controversies and kind of riled up some passions among people in the French film industry who had been alive during that time. Um, and critics and, you know, just everybody because it was a film about, like, working at Continental during the occupation Mm. and, like, those were the lead characters in it and it was like, well, you know, is the film exonerating them? Is it giving, you know, getting them off the hook? Is it too harsh to them? Is it, you know, like, people just don't really know how to feel about that era so they just usually don't talk about it. Um, But that's the atmosphere under which Le Maine du Diable was made Uh, and it is, to the best of my knowledge, Loosely based on a novel by Gerard de Nerval. Um, did you find anything about him or this novel? Well, he's a big deal. Okay. He's a big deal, Ben. Oh. <laughs> um, it's actually a novella. Okay. Which is just a fancy word for a very short novel. Or a very long short story. Exactly. And it was first published in 1832 as 
La Main Enchante. The Enchanted Hand. Yes, uh, that's the direct translation. <laughs> um, most people translate it as the Magic Hand. Gotcha. Now, 1832, so we're like, this is like an adaptation, like this is a French Edgar Allan Poe situation, basically. Oh yeah, this dude is way old. <laughs> <laughs> Gerard de Neval was actually the pseudonym of Gerard Labruni, and he lived from 1808 to 1855. Actually a fairly short life, he only lived to 46 years old. He was born in Paris to a young mother and doctor. His father, Etienne, uh, was drafted into Napoleon's army, so Gerard, at one month old, was left with some family friends, while Etienne and his wife traveled east across Europe. His mother would not survive the travels and the war, but Gerard's father returned after Napoleon failed to invade Russia in 1812. Mm. And I just thought it was interesting to highlight the fact that Napoleon has entered into our story here because we started this episode with talking about World War II. Mm -hmm. In school, Gerard was interested in poetry and the possibilities of satire, and he had writings published as early as when he was 18. At 19, we all feel pretty ambitious when we're hitting 19, and for Gerard, this meant translating Goethe's Faust into French. Despite having minimal experience with German or the act of translation. Gotcha. <laughs> so he's he's basically he's got a copy of the book, he's got Google Translate open, and he's got a blank sheet of paper, and he's just going to give it the best he's got. Exactly. Right. So this translation was published in 1828, and while people were like, this, this is a little rough, his lyricism and use of poetry in it caught the eye of Victor Hugo. Oh. Leader of the Romantic Movement in France who decided to invite the young poet and translator to his apartment. And thus began Gerard de Nerval's participation in the French Romantic Movement. The French Romantic Movement, um, you know, it has kind of its own specific flavor rather than, like, the English Romantic Movement. So I'll just kind of briefly state that it's kind of characterized by using forms like historical novels, hence Victor Hugo, capital R romance or gothic novels, and that's gothic, as in Mary Shelley-type gothic, working with and retelling myths. Mm. And thematically, um, they kind of go into two categories and often overlap. So the first theme that's often seen is the uncertainty of passion or happiness or hope, things <laughs> like that. Uh huh. And the other theme is the overwhelming feeling of melancholy and disillusionment. So right. again, if you know Victor Hugo, yeah, um, Gerard worked alongside many of the French Romantic uh, players, you could say. Um, he actually worked with Alexandre Dumas on many plays, and was colleagues with Théophile Gautier, and of course Victor Hugo. Well, it's clear that Gerard worked alongside his Romantic contemporaries. Um, many scholars actually find some beginnings of surrealism in his works. Interesting. Because of uh, his use and reliance on um, retelling of myths and dreams and lyricism. By the way, I keep saying his first name rather than his last name because he preferred to go by Gerard in all cases. Mm. Probably because that was like the same first name with like, his legal name and his pseudonym. 
Gerard was very active in writing in the Romantic style, getting involved in journalism, and getting published in journals throughout the 1830s. Uh, for example, La Main Enchantée, published in 1832, was published in the journal Le Cabinet de Lecture. That's a very anglicized way of saying it, but it, it translates to the reading cabinet. Okay. Which I think is just lovely. <laughs> because, like, old school journals look like cabinets, and it's a reading cabinet. I love it. Okay. He would also release updated versions and editions of Faust. And keep working, you'll get there one day, Gerard. <laughs> and because of his like use of retelling myths, Gerard de Naval is kind of seen as the French writer who helped bring German literature and literary thought into France in the 1800s. Huh. Yes. But poverty began to take its toll, and he had his first of many nervous breakdowns and hospitalizations in 1840. He began to travel throughout the 1840s for his health, inspiring uh, some travelogues that he would write and publish. Upon his return to Paris, he brought along his pet lobster, uh, who he would walk along the Parisian streets at the end of a blue silk ribbon. All right. And I just feel like it's important to emphasize this because of Salvador Dali's anteater. Right. His 1850s return to Paris brought productivity in the face of emotional and financial troubles. Um, during the 50s, he would publish collections of his earlier work, for example, La Bohème Galante uh, in 1952, which was a collection that also included La Main Enchantée. Um, and unfortunately, he committed suicide in 1855 by hanging himself in a dark street in Paris. Mm. Um, despite the fact that he committed suicide, thanks to the prestige of his friends um, and, you know, showing his troubled mental state, he was still able to have a funeral in Notre Dame um, and then was buried. Mm. La Main Enchantée, um, like I said, was originally published in 1832, and it follows Eustache Boutreau, okay, who is a draper, fancy word for someone who works with clothing. Okay. His romantic rival challenges him to a duel, which Eustache, Eustache will definitely not win, as he's not a swordsman, and he's not good at fighting. Right. He's not. He's no Baldwin. Yes. <laughs> There's a lot of parallels between this and Student of Prague, but also really between those two, together's Faust. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, the idea that this boy is a Faust fan is, is no surprise. Yeah. So Eustache goes to find Master Gonan, who sells charms and the like, and Eustache asks for something that will ensure he wins this coming fight. Gonan uses a substance on Eustache's right hand, but warns him that payment is due in eight days, or he'll collect the hand itself. Eustache goes... This is such a hard name. Eustache goes to the sword fight, and he wins! But he decides to not pay his debt to Gonan. Because fuck it. Fuck it. In People do this in fairy tales all the time. <laughs> it's like, why are you... Just pay the man. Yeah. Instead, he goes to the police for protection. Um, but then, out of Eustache's control, his right hand attacks and kills the officer. 
He's arrested and hanged, and upon his death, his right hand detaches and returns to Gonin, waiting by the gallows. Ah, creepy. Yes. I thought you were going to say that Gonin uh, faked his own beheading in order to make uh, Eustace think that his hand had come alive so that he could, (laughs) whatever the fuck the plot of Hans Vorlach was. Yeah, I think it's very interesting to point out some of these similarities with prior German films, Mm -hmm. especially since this film is being made by a German-owned Nazi propaganda company. Yeah. You know? So, like you pointed out, there's some of, like, Orlach's Hand, which was also just based off of a French novel. Right. There's, like, a lot of, like, intermingling between France and Germany in terms of, like, its cultural products. Right. So, like, I think you can even see that in Gerard de Nerval's first interest in German literature, but when I read that Gerard was, like, translating Faust, like, the big thing in Germany, and helped bring German literature into France, uh... It did not surprise me that they were adapting something of his right. for this. Yeah, it's, it feels like something that you could get approval for, basically. Yeah. Checks all of the boxes, um, and the fact that how many... We have three adaptations of Student of Prague. Yeah, and two Hands of Orlac. Yeah. But in the case of Student of Prague, like, there's a lot of similarities with Faust in there, um, so we could basically just call this the French student of Prague, possibly. Well, we'll have to see. Yes. Because the plot summary you just said... Of the, of the novella. Of the novella doesn't sound a lot like what the movie's about. Sure. Um, specifically, no one's named Eustish. That will make giving the film plot summary a lot easier. <laughs> Don't name your kid Eustish. I'm so sorry if someone named Eustish is listening to this show. So the novel's plot was, as I said, very loosely adapted. Um, we're going to have to see how loose, because I've never seen this movie before. Um, and the adaptation was by a French director and screenwriter and actor named Jean-Paul Le Chanois. And he is perhaps best known today for his 1958 version of Les Miserables which was immensely popular when it came out, but critics then and now generally prefer the 1934 version by Ramon Bernard. Le Chinois fought in the French Resistance while continuing his film career at Continental Films. So he's basically going to work making these movies for the Nazis, and then he was like weekend warrior, uh, French Resistance fighter, basically. Probably putting in some anti-Nazi sentiment in the films where he can. Where he could, but um, my reading told me that the Germans got pretty good at spotting that kind of stuff and, like, cracked down on it, like, more and more as time went on. Sure. The director of this film is Maurice Tourneur, father of Cat People director Jacques Tourneur. Born Maurice Thomas in 1876 in Paris... Tourneur was trained as a graphic designer, but went into theater rather than uh, the magazine industry. He married in 1904 to an actress, and his son was born later that year. Under his stage name, he acted with a touring theatrical company. Excited by the new film industry, he became an assistant director in 1911 and was directing his own films a year later. In 1914, he moved to the United States and started making American feature films. 
He and his team garnered much acclaim, and he became a very respected director in the American film industry. In 1921, he became a U.S. citizen, and in 1922, he moved to Hollywood. His wife divorced him in 1923, and in 1926, he began work on the big-budget adventure film The Mysterious Island for MGM. However, that film went over schedule and over budget due to numerous production problems. Uh, There was delays due to weather. There was delays due to just sort of other scheduling uh, problems. There was the fact that midway through production, MGM decided they wanted to shoot like the whole movie if they could in two-tone Technicolor. Um, It's only like... (laughs) That'll keep it cheap. Yeah, it's only like, I think, 30% two-tone Technicolor, but the rest is like hand-shegal process. And then sound became a thing, and MGM decided they wanted it to be a talkie as well. So Tourneur was actually let go and replaced by Benjamin Christensen, who was also let go and replaced by Lucien Hubbard when the sound sequences were added. And the movie didn't actually come out until, I believe, 1929. Benjamin Christensen... Directed Hexen. Yeah, that's where I've heard his name. After the difficulties with MGM, Tourneur decided to move back to France. He made the shift to talkies and married another actress in 1933. Le Main du Diable was one of Tourneur's last films, uh, because in 1949, he was in a car crash in which he lost his leg. He retired from the film industry and spent the rest of his career translating English detective novels into French before passing away in 1961. That seems like a neat pastime when you've kind of retired yourself. Yeah. Um, So he continued to work in, like, Nazi-occupied France with the company? Yes. Yeah. So he stayed in France. He worked in Nazi-occupied France. Um, It's similar to what we talked about with uh, German uh, filmmakers under the Nazis, which was like, your choice was work for the Nazis or don't work, you know? In a lot of ways. I'm just surprised because he's an American citizen by now, right? So Yeah, and his son is in the U.S. His son actually chose to stay in the U.S. when his dad moved back to France. So he... Yeah, so I'm like... I'm, he could have gone at any time is kind of what you're trying to, to bring up. Yeah. Yeah. The film stars Pierre Freinet, who was born Pierre Laudenbach in 1897 in Paris. He was encouraged by his uncle to become an actor and he appeared in many popular French stage productions throughout the 1920s. He served in the French army in World War I, and I suspect, you know, stage names are very common uh, for performers, especially around this time, but I'm suspicious that one of the reasons why he changed his name, too, is that, like, his original last name has, like, kind of a Germanic sound to it. Yeah. His success in the 1929 play Marius as the title character led to him reprising the role in the 1931 film version. He was in Alfred Hitchcock's 1934 version of The Man Who Knew Too Much and appeared in Jean Renoir's 1937 masterpiece, Le Grand Illusion. His decision to work for Continental Films damaged his popularity with the public, despite his declarations that he continued working only to help save the French film industry during the occupation. After the war, he was detained for six weeks on suspicion of being a collaborator before he was released on lack of evidence. He returned to acting in 1947, winning critical acclaim for the title role in Monsieur Vincent. He continued acting uh, and passed away in 1975. 
So, Le Man du Diable was released on April 21st, 1943, in France, but it would not be seen in the United States until after the war, when it was released on April 7th, 1947, as Carnival of Sinners. The film is shown under that title, on TCM, and it is only on Blu-ray in France, uh, without English subtitles. So, if you want to see it with English subtitles, you got to catch it on TCM. All right, folks. Well, if you would like to watch along, uh, make sure you got access to TCM. Yeah, check your local TV listings. <laughs> your, I guess it's just the thing on your remote. There's no TV guide anymore, I'm sure. Just, yeah, but set your PVR to record it when it shows up. Yeah, or if you're in France, find the Blu-ray. Yeah. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss La Main du Diable, a.k.a. Carnival of Sinners, from 1943, directed by Maurice Tourneur. See you on the other side, everybody. shows, including the Dead TV Podcast, Supernatural Creatures and Lore, and the Lost Boys Movie Minute Podcast, with some of my co-hosts, like, for the Dead TV Podcast, Mr. Zeneca. Hi, I'm the co-host for the Dead TV Podcast, Occult Knowledge, Adam's Family, and Cursed Objects, and more. Listen to us. And then for the Supernatural Creatures and Lore Podcast, I have B-Movie Screen Queen actress Mel Heflin. I'm horror actress Mel Heflin, and I appear in such flicks as Dick Nato and Mrs. Claus. And then for the Lost Boys Movie Minute podcast, I have film critic Scott Danielson. Join us every week as a new podcast airs on RadioHorror.com. Supernatural Creatures and Lore covers the monsters mythology connected to the TV series Supernatural, the dead TV podcast covering canceled television shows in the science fiction, fantasy, and horror genre, and the Lost Boys Movie Minute, where we break down the film Lost Boys one minute to five minutes at a time. Join us every week on the RadioHorror.com network. Hello and welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching La Main du Diable, The Devil's Hand, also known as Carnival of Sinners, from 1943, directed by Maurice Tourneur. I don't get the American title. Well, there's a carnival, and everyone's a sinner. I mean, there was carnival happening in the background at one point in one scene of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's a good title, but it's not a good title for this movie. Marketing doesn't always pay attention to to that. Fair. You know, they already got your money, that your butt is in the seat. It doesn't matter whether that title actually has anything to do with what's on screen. Fair. Yeah. But, I mean... The Devil's Hand makes more sense. Yes. Um, I quite liked this movie. I enjoyed it as well. Yeah. But let me tell you about it. For sure. So the film opens on an inn isolated by an avalanche. It's up in the mountains. And the guests there, they're lively, they're gossiping. um, And they are surprised when this man named Roland Brousseau arrives. He has a prosthetic left hand. He's only carrying... A small box with him. He's very jumpy and nervous, and he's very intriguing to the other guests. 
And I should say, like, during the opening and kind of throughout the entire film, there's a lot of work done to establish a kind of mood and atmosphere um, that don't actually relate to the plot. So I won't go into detail, but for example, before Roland shows up, there's, like, shots heard outside, and everyone's just a little on edge. Um, there's just some, like, interesting things being done here. During dinner, the lights go out and Roland's package is stolen. In a fit of despair, he recounts his story to the guests, and then we get a bit of a flashback. Turns out Roland is a painter of still life, with little success, um, both with art and with women. And I think, like, generally with anything. <laughs> yeah, he just seems to not be very good at what he's trying to do. But he has a lot of ambition. He's like one of those guys who, like, thinks he can do anything and just can't. Yeah. He's currently trying to woo Irene, but is failing. After a fight at a restaurant, she storms out. And, you know, sitting alone at the table, Roland is approached by the chef, Melis, who offers him a talisman. And it's a left hand in a box, and Melis guarantees that this will give you all of your successes in any endeavor. And he's going to sell it for the low, low price of one penny. Get it now, there's one left. He's, it's a very pushy sales job. He does, you know, give Roland the full details. Like, yeah, this hand will give you everything, but you have to sell it in a year, or the devil's going to get your soul. And, fine print, you gotta sell it for half of what you paid. I paid two pennies, so Roland, I'm gonna sell it to you for one penny. Uh, you know, see if you can spot the problem that Roland's going to have here. Exactly. So yes, he needs to sell it again in a year. Um, now there's a strange man who's a dishwasher at the restaurant. His name happens to be Angel, and there's kind of a nice snide remark of, you know, he thinks because his name is Angel that he has to watch over everyone. And he's calling from the back. Don't do it, Roland! But, not believing in a soul, God, or the devil, Roland buys the hand. Upon purchase, Melissa's hand, left hand, disappears. And this does kind of unnerve Roland, but those it feelings should. pass. Yeah. Um, those feelings pass as... Over the next year, he has a great number of successes in the art world, not to mention some romantic success with Irene. Everything's coming up Roland. Exactly. Money, critical acclaim. Women. Yep, he's got everything. Throughout the year, there's a strange, black-suited, small man kind of following Roland, um, and on the anniversary of his purchase of the talisman, this small man confronts Roland. It's time to give up his soul. Roland hesitates and then decides, you know what, I'll give you back the talisman, full refund, I'll buy back my soul for one penny, and you get the hand back. And the devil's like, sure, you'll lose all this, though. Roland makes the offer, but then rescinds pretty much immediately. Because, yeah, like, the second he starts considering selling it back, Irene's suddenly like, I don't really like you. And, like, it's, like, very immediate that everything starts going wrong. Yeah. So the devil says that, you know what, I'm a nice guy. The offer is still going to be on the table, but the dollar amount you need to pay will double every day. So today it's a penny. Tomorrow it's two pennies. Following day, four pennies. So on and so forth. Now... I don't know if you're a mathematician, but that's an exponential growth. Mm -hmm. And I, 
I get anxiety about money and numbers in general, and boy was I on edge during this part. Um, Roland begins obsessing about money because, you know, it's growing exponentially. And in this obsession, he drives away Irene and begins to lose his success as a painter. Irene leaves him because he's gotten violent, um, comes back into the story briefly during a montage to say, hey, don't ask how, I got money, and then she's murdered, and that money's stolen. Yeah, so it's a it, bit of a fridging situation. Well, every time that Roland has enough money to pay the devil, there's like something that means that he doesn't, he can't quite make it. And it gets ridiculous because with it doubling every day, like at one point he's got the two million francs he needs, but he's like eight bucks short or something. And he's like, okay, well, you know, give me a second. I'll go borrow some money from someone. And the devil just like speeds time forward to the next day and is like, sorry. And now it's $4 million. And that's when Irene, yeah, contacts him to be like, hey, I can lend you some money. And then she's killed, uh, presumably by the devil, so she can't lend this money, and it's like, you know, then the next day it's 16 million, and then it's 32 million, and it's like, oh shit. Yeah. So, Roland's kind of at the end of his rope. There are several times, though, where he says, my life is not my own, as in, I can't commit suicide. Because mm. uh, that means that the devil gets his soul. Right, exactly, yeah. Then, uh, that dishwasher named Angel, he shows up again, and is like, hey, remember how my name's Angel? <laughs> yeah. I got some contacts for you in uh, Monte Carlo, so head there, do some gambling, and then head to Nice. This is like the third movie we've watched for the show where someone goes gambling in Monte Carlo. It's like a very weird trend. I mean, it's like the place, you know. In Europe, that's like the Las Vegas, you know? Sure. I think they would presume they're classier than Las Vegas. (laughs) So Roland does this, and, you know, things are coming up, and then they aren't. So he's now penniless, and he returns to his hotel in Monte Carlo, and he's met by the previous owners of the hand who appear to him during the carnival that's happening in the background. We see a swordsman, a thief, a juggler, magician, surgeon, boxer, and then Melissa the chef. Yeah, and and this chain of guys going back to the original uh, guy who bought this thing from an alchemist, the swordsman, like, this goes back to, like, musketeer times. Like, these guys clearly aren't, like currently alive coming to talk to Roland. Like, some of them at least must be ghosts, basically. No, they all dead. Yeah. They all dead. They all get, like, a little bit of a a short, brief montage to explain their deals, and at the end, it's like, yeah, and then the king was going to take off my head, but not before I sold the hand. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, you know, the reason that these guys are coming together is because they're here to help. Somehow. (laughs) (laughs) Then the devil shows up, confronts them, and laughs. Um, But in that confrontation, the devil inadvertently reveals the hand's original owner as Maximus Leo, who appears in heavenly light. Turns out he's a monk who is super talented with his left hand. Don't read too far into that. Um, And his hand was stolen by the devil. Therefore, because you can't sell something that you stole, you don't actually own it, all of these legal deals are null and void. Thus, the curse is broken. Roland, his soul is saved, um, but he does lose his left hand. But as thanks for breaking the curse, he vows to take the talisman to the monk's grave and reunite the hand with the original body. So then we, you know, 
come back into present time. We're back with Roland at the inn with all of the guests. Um, and he reveals that, yeah, my soul is saved, but, you know, I tricked the devil. He's going to fuck me up. Um, so my soul is safe, but my life isn't. And that's a great line. And the significant thing here is that the hotel that he's come to is built on the ruins of the abbey that this monk lived and died at. Yeah. And as he just finishes telling his story, he looks out the window and sees the devil in the graveyard with the hand. Um, so he chases after the devil. Most of this happens off screen, um, but they fight. After the fight, Roland does die. He falls off the top of the abbey, um, but the hand is reunited with the monk Maximus Leo. Yeah, like, the hand falls with him, and they, like, fall on top of the monk's, like, tomb or whatever, and the hand, like, rolls into the tomb. And it's like, there. All's well that ends well, kind of. Fixed it. Yeah. Got some duct tape. Mm -hmm. The end. So I know that saying all of that out loud, and even as I was writing it, that synopsis sounds pretty long and convoluted, but the movie does a really good job with pacing that kind of keeps you in the moment and keeps you kind of stuck in place. It, um, it's, it's not very long. It's like an hour and a half, maybe a little under that. And one thing that it does really well is because it's using this um, framing narrative where Roland's telling his story to other people, it can gloss over parts of the story and be like, yeah, and then I became very successful. A year later, the devil showed up so that we don't have to, like, sit through parts of the story that aren't interesting, basically. Yeah. You can kind of just gloss over them with, and then I came here and did this thing, and here's the next interesting scene in the story, um, which is a nice way to do that. Yeah, I mean, we've seen some movies in the past, I mean, most of those were in, like, the 20s or 30s, where they had framing narratives like this, or they had a few flashbacks, and they didn't they didn't know how to do this kind of economy of storytelling that we're seeing in this film. Mm -hmm. um, so it was something that I appreciated, especially when we started getting like the flashbacks, montages of all of the previous owners of the talisman. Yeah, I, even for me, that scene dragged on a little too much because yeah. like everyone's story is the same is the problem, right? Like every single guy's story is I sucked. Then I bought this hand from a dude, I became awesome, but it actually ended up screwing me over in the end, so I sold the hand before I died. Like, that's everyone's story, and you get that, like, six times or something, because they need to, they need to repeat it so many times because they need to get you from, like, medieval times when the story starts all the way to modern day, so it needs to be, like, enough iterations for that to be believable. And the only thing that really separates these guys is, like, what their professions are, right? Yeah, a little bit of their endings. Each of them has kind of a... A different ending. Sure. Like, same thing. They die, but, like, yeah. Yeah, I, and like I said during the plot synopsis, like, I think it's very good at mood setting and maintaining that atmosphere, um, and that's through the lighting, some of the cinematography, some of the um, effects that we saw. Like, there were some neat things going on when we were cutting between the montages. I, I think that there's just a lot of effort and skill on display here. This movie, for me, feels more than anything like a feature-length episode of The Twilight Zone. Sure. Uh, it has kind of the rhythm and the beats of a particularly clever fable or a well-told, like, campfire ghost story. Maybe part of that is because it's literally being told to us. 
Sure, you but know. like it's got that same. It doesn't have the feel of like a um, a modern horror movie the way that like RKO is starting to develop them in America. Mm. Even though this movie's set in like ostensibly a version of the modern day. Yeah, um, they do say the 20th century. Yeah, it's the 20th century, but like what decade isn't important because we don't want to talk about Nazis. <laughs> um, but the the overall like structure and flavor of the story, you know. It's 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 Faust, right? So it still has that very like, I think traditional kind of feel, and the way that the devil gets outsmarted, or the way that certain plot elements are resolved, um, all has that like very clever sort of feel that you get from like you know old Brothers Grimm stories or Aesop Fable type things, where it's like, oh, but actually on a technicality, this is a thing, right? Sure, it um, is just on a technicality mm-hmm. that Roland saved. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed this this movie. I think, um, like you said, the cinematography is really good. Uh, there's some very nice, like, black and white images with a lot of good use of shadow. As you mentioned, some really nice subtle special effects with certain, you know, just like little things like the devil walking through walls or, like, projecting shadows here and there or um, the hand that moves by itself when it's in the box or little little things like that. But while there is overlap between like a clever spooky story and the horror genre they're not necessarily the same thing and by 1943 i would argue that horror had grown into something kind of distinct from those sort of old school spooky fables uh with like their little morals at the end and the sort of old-fashioned style and tone of this movie that i'm talking about means that it didn't really feel like a horror movie to me it had spooky elements but it it doesn't feel like horror to me. Um, that's that's for my money, anyways. I disagree. Yeah, I thought you would because you said that you really liked it. I think a version of this story could be successful horror. In fact, we have plentiful evidence of that because we've seen three versions of Student of Frog and two versions of Hands of Orlac. Um, but I think what makes this movie feel like something else for me is the tone. Um, there's some creepy moments here, there's some chilling moments here, but to be honest, the tone I read the most frequently in this movie is black comedy. It's kind of, to me, came across as a kind of mean, biting satire at the character's expenses. Mm. This feels to me like a, uh, like a farce that everyone is kind of trapped in, and, um, the joke is at the expense of the characters in the story. And, you know, so there are these horrific elements to the story, but the tone was more, like, witty. Like, the script for the movie is very clever, and it's occasionally chilling, but more often than not, what I was doing watching this movie was laughing. Uh, Not so much, like, at the movie, but with the movie, because it was very clever and very funny and very witty. It doesn't feel like the movie was trying to scare me, but rather just to get me to appreciate how clever its modern take on Faust was. You know, this movie feels less akin to you know, cat people are Dracula, and more akin to, like, a French noir predecessor to, like, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore's Bedazzled from the 60s. <laughs> okay, sure. The, the movie delights in these little, like, side episodes where it'll kind of pan away from Roland for a moment to give you these depictions of, like, humorous provincial French people or, like, really, like, it, it delights in eccentric people uh, expressing their 
uh, eccentric opinions. Um, you know, if this is supposed to be a scary story, it felt like a scary story told by someone who's not particularly interested in being scary and is more interested in being charming. Because I found this movie very charming, and I found a lot of its directorial and filmmaking flourishes to remind me of, like, older styles of filmmaking that we don't see anymore here in the 40s. Like, the the flashbacks to the different guys who have had the hands over the years, that montage, felt like something you'd see in the 20s. There's these, like, poofs of smoke and these very, like, simple sets and these kind of shadowy things that are being done in the proscenium. It felt like references to movies like The Golem and stuff. And I mean... You know, I talked about in the intro that Tournure had been making movies since the 1910s, right? So he's kind of using these older styles in these flashbacks within his flashback. And all of it felt very charming, but I never felt particularly, like, chilled or scared. Yeah, I think your comment about it being a little old-fashioned is accurate. And I don't think that's a case of, well, the war is going on, so, like media couldn't travel into areas or anything like that because we've seen horror that is fairly modern from the UK Mm -hmm. and I I think it's more a result of Turner being a bit old-fashioned himself. Yeah the other feeling I got from this movie too was you know I'm talking about the fact that it kind of felt charming and, and clever and witty and funny is that like it's it's like a a ghost story but you know you have to remember that it's being told to like a, a you know a people whose country's being occupied mm-hmm. so i feel like that kind of explains for me at least why the tone is fun even though it is a a you know kind of a story about selling your soul to the devil and bad things happen to people and certainly you know roland's situation becomes increasingly horrific over time but the movie doesn't really like twist the knife in on those horrific elements too often. It doesn't really make too much of a point of making the story, like, really unpleasant. And that makes sense because, like, why do that? Um, Especially when we know that the German film methodology, I guess, of the time anyways was, like, light, fluffy escapism. But it makes even more sense, you know, that's probably what you want to be giving the people right now. Yeah, I was kind of surprised that we were getting a horror movie in... Nazi-occupied France. Mm-hmm. Um, I was also surprised at how Catholic this movie is. Yeah, that's very true. Especially because in episodes where we've talked about what was going on in Germany before it became Nazi Germany, they were very controlling of other institutions like religion or unions or anything <laughs> like that. So to see a film that's like very Catholic, it made me... I don't know, maybe it was because it was Catholic, but, like, it just felt like a very French film. Yes. Not a Nazi Germany or Nazi type of propaganda kind of film. Yeah. Um, And I was surprised because I knew about this film's, at least, like, the story it's developed from, the guy had ties to Germany, or at least, like, the cultural ideas in Germany. Mm -hmm. Um. Obviously, it's playing off of Faust, which is a German myth or legend or whatever. Um, So I was surprised at how French it felt. And then I started thinking about how, like, this movie is about a deal that just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And I think that's something that French people could really identify with, even if they were in support of 
Vichy France. Yeah, which I mean, not a lot of people were. Um, <laughs> when it started, when Vichy France started, it was, like, contentious. Yeah. But, like, definitely as things went on, people got more and more, like, fuck that decision. Also, I didn't really make a point of this in the plot summary, but the movie, towards the end, once we we meet the past owners of the talisman, starts to really harp on this idea of a chain. Part of the reason why we see the details of, here's how the hand first came to the dude, and then went to the next dude, and whatever, is because there's like a comment about how we're all links in a chain, and then when Roland dies on Maximus Leo's grave, um, someone makes a comment about the chain has finally linked to itself. And I think the idea about like connecting to past owners, connecting to your own history and your own cultural roots, has a kind of subtle French nationalist vibe to it. And I that mean, that chain being ultimately what helps you break out of this contract that's gone really bad. You know, I, I think it's very tempting to look for political messages in this movie because of the time and place it was being made. Um, and I can see the connections that you're making, but I didn't really feel them watching the movie. Like, I think it's very tempting to look at a movie that's about a deal with the devil and be like, aha, I see, I see what they're doing here. But I don't think this movie really works that well as an allegory for Vichy France. There's nothing, like, to me watching it, the situation between Roland and the devil didn't really feel like an expression of the situation between France and the Nazis. I mean, to be fair, to even make a slight comment like that, you had to have made it not very obvious, right? Like, if it had been a bit more obvious about it, they wouldn't have been able to make the movie. Mm -hmm. But the movie doesn't feel subversive in that way. It's funny that you talked about... um, how French the movie feels. And I I very much agree with that. I think the thing about this movie is that if you didn't tell me that it was made during the occupation, I wouldn't be able to tell. And, you know, it doesn't mention it, but that's sort of to be expected. But I don't know, like, it's kind of to the movie's detriment and to the movie's um, benefit that it doesn't feel like it's directly commenting on the political situation. Um, Because on the one hand, that means that its story kind of can stand on its own. You know, the message about we're all links in a chain that you bring up, you know, you're connecting it certainly with the idea that like, you know, if we all stand together as Frenchmen, we can shackle, you know. French people. Yeah. uh, We can, uh, you know, throw off the shackles of our Nazi oppressors. But I think like that message is also just a really good overall message about I think at one point in the movie they say something along the lines of, like, it's all of our kind of duty to help the next person in the chain. Because if you don't, the chain becomes broken and it all breaks apart. Mm-hmm. Um, is a very good, like, universal message. You know, watching the movie, I kind of... And knowing, you know, how often on the show we talk about how horror gets to be a genre that can be used to be subversive and kind of slide things in under the radar. I really wanted to see this movie be a little bit like, more subversive than it was. But I didn't really feel that. It felt just sort of like a very clever Faustry telling. Um, So I I totally can see how you're getting the connections Mm -hmm. that you're getting. I just didn't... I just can't get there myself. They weren't strong enough for me. Okay. I think to just kind of go back a little bit with what you were saying about, like, you don't think this is horror. 
Like, I, I do think this is horror. I, I think it's a bit old-fashioned, definitely. And I think it's definitely more of a subtle kind of horror, not, like, um, a horror in the way that, like, even, like, the 31 Jekyll and Hyde mm-hmm. is a horror movie. But I, I still would argue that this is a horror movie. I think that was the intent of the people making it. What I like about horror, and maybe it's why there are parts of, like, more recent horror movies that I, I can't really get behind, is I like its ability to do some black humor mm. with itself and black comedy with itself. And I feel like this movie was able to, like, do it without making the whole situation feel ridiculous. It, everything still felt fairly believable. The story takes itself seriously, for sure. Like, yeah. the story isn't winking at the audience being like, but this is stupid, isn't it? Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it is It is at least taking its own rules and its own logic seriously. Um, what's funny in the movie is just the, like, characters who exist within it and their kind of running commentary on the situation. The movie does a really good job of doing some good horror atmospherics and, mm-hmm. and building, like, a mood. Um, I do find... I just sort of found that the mood would get broken by kind of this very French-feeling, to me, desire to have, like, funny people who complain about their soups and eccentric, uh, you know, people at the inn who, who, who have their own little side lives and things. It, it was like um, trying to watch you know, a version of a horror story, but with, like, the flavor of, like, a Jacques Tati film. <laughs> I was thinking it, you know, I was where thinking it's, about playtime. Right, where it's like... I so, so what I'm willing to kind of meet you in the middle on about this movie is if this is a horror movie, I think it's a horror movie that was made by people who weren't really well-equipped to make a horror movie. Or, like, that kind of genre isn't what's in their heart. They know that to make a horror movie, you know, you're going to have these shadows and they can do that because, frankly, shadows aren't something that horror owns. It can be in other genres, <laughs> um, you know, and they, they know to do some creepy things and have, you know, there be bangings at the door you can't explain or the lights go out for no reason or, you know, whatever, like these little cheap ghost story moments. Um, but I feel like the heart wasn't in it, right? Because the core of this movie, like... If this had been real horror, like really chilling stuff, when he shows up at his apartment and suddenly it's this like council of dead ghosts who are all like creepily lit and everything confronting him, they would have been there to damn him, not to help him, right? Mm -hmm. Like in a horror story like that, things get worse and worse and worse until they get as worse as they can get. And that's the end of a horror movie. Um, And in this film, the ghosts show up to help the guy. And they're like, hey, we're on your side. We're the League of Right-Handed Ghosts, like, <laughs> you know, who've shown up to save the day. And then, like, the the monk shows up, you know, <laughs> the door's yeah, opening with the, 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 like, like, holy ooh. light from behind him. Ooh. Like, I am the most pious man who ever lived, and you shall whatever. So that was where it kind of really lost me as a horror movie, was because we defeat Satan at the end. Now, granted, it kind of gets it back by coming back to the inn and he fights the devil and and ends up dying. I was kind of dramatically unsatisfied by the fact that that fight happens like way off in the distance, like on top of like, you know, in silhouette, like we don't really see what happens. It's, it's, we're on the reactions of the people at the inn, um, was a little unsatisfying to me. So 
if this is horror, I think it's horror made by people who would much rather be telling a story about, like, man's responsibility to do good to man and these really Catholic Christian virtues about, um, you know, humility and uh, working together and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And that kind of doesn't really fit with horror because if you want to scare people, you have to drive home the idea that all of that shit doesn't mean anything. So that's that's kind of where I'm where my take on this movie is sitting. Okay. Yeah, I feel like that's a a good middle ground for that. I did really enjoy this movie. I don't want to give the impression that like I didn't. It just wasn't scaring me, but I was enjoying it on an intellectual level. I think the performances are great. Mm-hmm. Um particularly Pierre Frenet as uh the lead character. He has this great sense of like paranoia and neuroticism about him. And he's also really good at portraying, like, every stage of his character's evolution with, like, verisimilitude, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like he gets every stage of that, and it all feels like one character arc, right? So I really liked his um, performance. The other performance I really liked is um, Palau, who plays uh, the role that's listed in the credits as uh, Le Petit Homme, uh, the small man. Yeah, the devil. Yeah. Uh, and he's excellent, uh, full of charisma and spite and this kind of, like, amused superiority. Uh, just a lot of fun to watch. Mm-hmm. This movie, like I said, has a lot, clearly has a lot of skill and effort put behind it. And you can definitely see that effort with um, the little, like, art Easter eggs in the background. Mm-hmm. Um, so Roland's a painter, so obviously, you know, here's a great opportunity to put that art history degree to use. <laughs> um, yeah, there's, like, if you have an art history degree, you'll find some Easter eggs, and I think you'll really enjoy it. But they, it all, it's not just, like, putting in the Mona Lisa, because, oh, it's the Mona Lisa. They're putting in art that has thematic relevance here and resonates with what they're doing, especially in the moment of when that art happens to be in. So I, I just want to compliment that. Well, would you like to move on to ranking? Okay. I'm going to um, have to let you start here because I didn't pick out a range um, because I wasn't planning on ranking this movie. Mm. Okay. Well, when I started looking at where to rank this movie, I thought, well, let's look at the other kind of like Nazi Germany movie that resonated a lot, and that is Fairman Maria at number 13. Mm-hmm. And I don't think this movie is like good enough to be up here. No, it it this movie doesn't have nearly the um impact of that movie. Yeah. Like that movie hits you in the gut. This movie I think hits you intellectually, but I don't think it has that same gut punch. It smacks you over the head instead. Of <laughs> punches you. Um, it's a deal with the devil. Get it? Get it? <laughs> and then I thought, you know, let's look at where the other like very Catholic movie on the list is, and that would be Vampire at number 22. Mm -hmm. Vampire is a better horror movie, but um, I felt this movie was pretty good, so the highest I would put this is below Vampire. Um, And then, my range is really big, Ben, so I'm not going to be much help, I think, but just kind of like looking down, I was also thinking about, especially during our conversation just now, about horror movies in Nazi Germany. So you really liked the 1935 Student of Prague. I thought it was effective. I mean, it's not my favorite version of... It's not my favorite of the various students of Prague, but... Yeah. Um, he did not get an A. 
in the bell curve of that class. Mm-hmm. He's at the low end. Um, I'll start making these jokes. I think when getting ready to watch La Main du Diable, I was worried it was going to be another, like, 1935 student of Prague, where, like, it was, like, fine, but it didn't bring anything new, and I thought, like, you know, worst case, that this is just going to be propaganda, and this movie surprised me with, like, how good it was and how French it felt, um, so my bottom is 48, the 1935 student of Prague, so that's a huge range between 48 and 22, but I'm sure that you will be able to help us narrow things down. My instinct, for sure, is looking at the various students of Prague, because that's tonally what this movie feels the most like to me. Yeah, they're, um, they're all, like, Faust, Faustian. Yeah, and they have, like, that similar kind of, like, trickster take on the devil, right? Yeah. So, personally, for my money, I think the 1935 student of Prague works better as horror than this, because I felt the performance of um, the lead actor in that particular movie... Uh, as Baldwin, um, really communicated, like, that desperation. And I just thought, like, that movie's tone was a bit more uh, straightforward and serious, and that works for me better with horror. But I do think the version of The Devil's better in this, mm-hmm. um, because The 35 Student of Prague was just kind of, like, you know, it was it was the third helping of Scapinelli, basically, and it was just kind of getting a little stale. Um, certainly I think this is better than Ghost of Frankenstein, and the 1935 Student of Prague also is below The Mummy's Tomb, which is the second one that's set in modern day, where the mummy goes walking around the town at night. Oh, that one's so good. Okay, so how about we put this below Mummy's Tomb and above 35 Student of Prague? Yeah, I could... My personal feeling is below Student of Prague, above Ghost of Frankenstein, but in deference to your higher opinion of this movie, I guess, um, like you, you have, you have, this movie just seemed to like I enjoyed this, but I think this movie seemed to connect with you on a level that it didn't connect with me. Mm. Um, so I think in, in deference to that, and maybe to correct for, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm just having a bad day. So correct for any bias. <laughs> um, I think that's a fair spot to put it. Okay. So we'll. Put that in at number 48, La Main du Diable from 1943, directed by Maurice Tourneur. Great. I'm happy you could bow in deference to my opinion. <laughs> uh, if you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes that we've mentioned today, as well as uh, finding our appeals box. If you would like to submit an appeal for this or any other ranking, if you'd like to comment, suggest things, note a movie that we might have missed, uh, submit it through there. You are also welcome to email us directly at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. You can help out the show by leaving us a rating or a review on the service that you listen to us on, uh, if it allows ratings and reviews. Um, Those help other people find the show. Another thing that helps people find the show is just telling them about it. You can spread the word on social media. Word of mouth is the best way for podcasts to grow their audience. The other way that you can really help us out is by heading over to patreon.com slash Scream Scene Podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar 
a month. At the $5 and $10 level, you get regular rewards such as bonus audio and exclusive horror short fiction. If we hit our first Patreon goal of $150 a month, we'll start doing bonus episodes, one per month, on horror-adjacent movies. Movies that, you know, have something to do with horror, but maybe aren't horror, like Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, or the 1999 version of The Mummy, mm-hmm. um, or the Rankin-Bass stop-motion uh, Mad Monster Party TV special from the 1960s. Um, <laughs> actually, I think it was a theatrical film, now that I think about it. So that's patreon.com slash Podcast. So what are we watching next week, Ben? Well, it's kind of a fun coincidence, Sarah. La Main de Diable came out on April 21st, 1943, in France. And April 21st, 1943 was also the New York premiere of our next film, uh, which had its main release on April 23rd. And that film is directed by Maurice Tourneur's son, Jacques Tourneur, because next week we're watching I Walked with a Zombie. Awesome. That's a really good movie, too. It is a very good movie. I'm very excited. Yeah. Jane Eyre in Haiti. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Well, we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.